This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome, everyone, from all over the world, you know, Switzerland, Poland, all parts of Africa, the Caribbean, London. Thank you all for being here. Yes. yes. Large yeah. Africana Studies classroom in the world. In the world. And our master teacher. Good morning. Good oh, afternoon. Good, good, good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Hello, my friend. Uh-oh. All my stuff. I, I put the news. You know what it was? I know who it was. This is our friend from London. I guess I say our friend the way we say when we're being facetious. I think uh, his official title was the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, This is the cover of uh, Financial Times Weekend, Prince Philip. Actually, we're going to talk about Phil today. Are we? Okay. Sure. I mean, okay. This is this is your classroom. We're going to do what you need to do. No, Um, I mean, it's all good. And let me just say thank you, you know, telling us your reading habits. I invited someone on my show today, um, last last week from the Financial Times. Uh, oh, FT, very good. Oh, so, I so thank you. you for that. I uh, also want to thank you for introducing me to Dr. Sunyata Amen. Amen. Dr. Amen is the bomb. Oh my goodness. You, you know the together. I'm scared of that kind of power in I the mean, same conversation. So, so again, you know, uh, if you have not signed up for narrative, please do that. Narrative with a K like knowledge. Narrative with a K, K in front of the narrative.com. Yeah, let's, let's be clear. Narrative. You see that? Narrative. You see that? Oh, with a K. And, and you can also own that because the shop is open today. Oh, so oh you got to get this then. Yes. Yes. yes that is that is available to purchase. You're in not wearing about the car. You're yeah. wearing Theophile Obinga, one of the greatest intellectuals. He would always say that. Whatever he was talking about, he gets to the point. He say, boom, good. Let's be clear. Let's be oh, clear. and then at that moment, you, you know, know what's coming. You so I just picked up that habit from him. Look, but Dr. Wait, you perfect. recruited Dr. Amin? For the, you for you introduced us. So what happened was, what happened was, and we're going to get to this today. So y'all sit tight. Um, inside narrative, a group formed around farming. And we talked about yeah. this last week. And yeah. it organically, because this was the vision. Like, we're going to get there, see what it is, and then figure out how we can navigate. But what the special thing is, the special sauce of the people. So there's a certain kind of person that signed up for narrative and it's a certain mm-hmm. kind of person that is uh, interested in growing and building and community and they want to do some things. And that naturally, organically then creates other spaces. So they created this whole kind of conversation around farming. And then Uraeus, the great architect, built out Carver's class with all of the resources, videos. And then last week I had my first conversation with the founder of Sankofa Farms in North Carolina. Wow. I went online hunting for different people and we're going to have different farmers come in. But I wanted to start with a beekeeper because bees are foundational. You can't go. So he's a beekeeper, master beekeeper in North Carolina. So we had our first conversation and we're going to continue to do a series on beekeeping. Uh, that'll be available next week, uh, starting next week. Uh, Carver's class is available now. So if you're interested in farming, go into narratives. All of these resources are there. Video. Yeah. So have you seen Natalie? Natalie Basil just uh, dropped her book on black farmers. The sister who did Queen Sugar. It just it just came out, and it's all these farmers in it. I mean, it's just for a little. You know, every time you drop something, I write it down, and then I follow up because that's. Oh no, no, and then of course, farming while black. I mean, Sankofa. That's one of their biggest sellers, farming while black. So, so, but I know my friend Dr. Amon does this whole thing on decolonizing wellness. I mean, she's yes. a medical doctor, she's an herbalist. So, how? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, okay, so, so, so the no, consensus. I was just wondering then what you for introducing us because I invited her on the show with, with what I believe is going to be 
uh, a, a the beginning of something really special that will hopefully bleed over into narrative, which he's also been invited to participate in. But no, I, I, in. I agree with you. He's uh, like you. Y'all are creative. Just the creative genius is incredible. And like you, you can translate that theory, that deep insight into tangible goal related, objective, achievable you know, I mean, wow. I mean, what she's done here in D.C. with Calabash. I mean, just yeah, but y'all think like that. You can move the theoretical through to the OK. Now, here's how we win. Boom, 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 boom. And before you know it. Well, well as the kids say, say less. Come on over to narrative. y'all. <laughs> yeah, uh, when she said uh, my grandchildren, I almost fell out my chair. I was like, what, what grandchildren wear? She's doing something right, y'all. So Calabash tea and I, I spent a grip. Uh, on a whole bunch of well, stuff. Did you drop? Oh, I, I got it. Oh, I was like, I want this. I want this in the basket. And before I went to check out, stuff was sold out. So I was mad at my audience. I was like, y'all got to wait for at least me to get my stuff. But uh, God bless everybody out there. So, no um, well, she'll pull out her garden for you. So, I mean, I'm sure y'all already yeah. had that conversation. I got me some sea moss from the depths of the Jamaican. Anyway. Oh, that's the other thing. Yeah, we ain't going to talk about that because she is a whole, a whole witch. That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> and a maroon. So, I mean, <laughs> Woo. Don't right. play with it, don't. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 you say take it or let it alone, but don't. <laughs> if you take it, <laughs> well, I know. I know today was going to be Paul Robeson, and you did a two-minute John on Twitter that was oh, a masterclass right. in and of itself. Two minutes on Paul. So, so if you follow Dr. Card Africana Car on Twitter, you can get that. But I, um, somebody dropped a link earlier this week about this documentary, uh, and I was like, I never heard of it before. <laughs> And I'm like, why haven't I heard of this? Yes. So I started watching it yesterday and I got caught in this, you know, because your mind, uh, I'm already triggered, you know, between this Chauvin trial and everything else that's going on. So I'm sitting there watching episode one hmm. and uh, it's called Exterminate All the Brutes. So the title I'm like confused by. And then the the narrator, who's also the producer, Raul Peck, who also did I'm Not Your Negro. That's he, right. He's the narrator of this and his gravelly. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah. This okay. is when he came to D.C. to screen it. We had him. He's good friends with Holly and Shriek Garima. So he can sign my book, of course. Very good brother. Powerful. Did the thing on Patrice Lumumba. Uh, did, a, uh, did, of course, the Baldwin piece. Uh, Haitian, but raised in Congo and different places. I mean, just brilliant and a, and a scholar. I mean, this, this is that. Raul Peck is what filmmaking looks like. That's what I, so I didn't talk to you till earlier this morning. Cause I was like, can we talk about this? Oh, no question. <laughs> I started talking and I was like, I don't know. Cause you know, you, you have a crit, a different eye than most of us. Yeah. I usually don't watch documentaries. Yeah. Either, because so I have to. Right. But this one, I think everybody who's in here right now, if, mm -hmm. if you take someone tweeted, if y'all could put four hours aside to watch that justice league thing, y'all need to put four hours aside to watch exterminate all the brutes, because to me, you know, as I was watching it, I want to have this conversation with you. First of all, Raul Peck narrates it with his gravelly, beautiful voice. And it, it was, you know, shocking at first. I was like, what? you know, I'm not used to hearing that kind of narrator. And that it was French, that French voice, uh, the people is, uh, you see, genocide is a moment when we must consider. It's like Dijman Hansu. Once, once, you get it, once it gets in your ear. You I was like, like it was music. I was like, oh, oh no question. <laughs> so, but he talks about this this Polish writer, um, Joseph, uh, was it Joseph Conrad, in yeah, the Heart of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Heart of Darkness. And, that, and he talks about Kurt saying that the last will will be the last 
of the civilizing tasks of the white man among the savages of Africa. It was the last will, the last civilizing task of these white people to eliminate the savages of Africa and exterminate all the brutes. And that was a book by Sven uh, Lundquist and he was giving us the background. But I wanted to pause because he brought in the island of Dr. Moreau and Apocalypse Now and, and, uh, and there's one line where it says, the happiness of one cannot be built on the suffering of all others. And here we sit uh, in the midst of this and I've been, it's been in my spirit ever since we started these classes that something has broken that cannot be repaired in me. And I'm having a hard time, you know, existing in this space the way it currently is constructed because it's wrong. It's foul at its core. It it smells bad. The roots are rotten. And, you know, unless something different happens and I'm tired of talking about it. So I just want to just say that I need to get that off my chest. No question. But as I'm watching this documentary, the keys started to unfold in episode two, F Columbus, who the F is Columbus is what the title is of episode two. And then he goes right. on, but he's methodically Retelling, and in episode two, he shows the this uh, a portion of slavery, the extraction of bodies out of Africa, but those bodies are white. And I had to sit in that for a minute, Dr. Carr, because it was disturbing to my colonized mind to see white people in chains and being beaten with a lash. And I was like, isn't it, isn't it beautiful to vomit up all that, Ooh, all that, and, and miss education? What is Peck doing? I said, Peck gonna get hurt out here in these streets with this. Uh, this is this is the moment. This he's yeah. been building toward this for decades. So, so my question, my opening salvo, and y'all homework: watch, watch, exterminate watch all it. the brutes. Um, as I was watching it, I, I just had this burning question because it keeps coming back, right? Mm -hmm. um, if the the nature of folk who identify under this construct of whiteness, and that's what it is, you know, and that's what Peck is actually uncovering, that this, this colonizing brutality is to, you know, he goes through Jackson, is to eliminate the earth of all things not like it. That's right. And, and so they co-op different people to come into it so that they can com be conspiring in the elimination of all things that are not like it. That's right. We don't have that in us. Those of us who have not, you know, been fully indoctrinated. I mean, there are a few, you know, Tim Scott, Damon, Daniel Cameron. I could probably go down the list. Maybe shout out, shout out to the hand, maybe. No question. Sam, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Jason Whitlock. Maybe, you know, maybe there are a lot of people <laughs> who have, you know, the same nature of of elimination and extermination in their spirit because they've been so wedded to this thing. Yeah. But for those of us who have humanity and who love people and who want to mm. see the best for people, mm. I don't know how, you know, because there's a scene in the opening, uh, the first uh, one, where the Native Americans who are there uh, say these people come, they can't farm, they can't feed themselves, clothe themselves or survive. And then instead of forming a, a union with us, they threaten to kill our children and our women unless we help them. And we would have helped them anyway. So the story of the pilgrims and all of the, the lovely blah, blah, blah. No, it was under the threat of death. That, and it, But they said, why did you do this when we would, what makes you so jealous? One of the questions. And then why did you do this when we would help you anyway? Well, it's their nature no to question. destroy and eliminate. So I was like, wow, That's, what do you do with that? I don't know. I, I <laughs> I'm not sure. Put it this way. Um, if we say it's their nature, then we are saying it's our nature. I don't mean in 2021, what the calendar calls 2021. I mean, from the origin of the species, every human that will walk the planet ever 
came out of Africa. So, so let me be clear. I'm not talking about humans. I'm not talking about human beings. I know. I'm talking about a spirit, right? That could possess mm-hmm. all of us, right? At any point in time. So I'm not even talking about white people per se. I'm talking about a spirit of lack of, of insecurity, of fear. I'm, I'm talking about all of that, right? Oh, that right know. now is the dominating spirit globally. It's the spirit that could take from the continent. He even talks about Central and South America and all of the so-called explorers that came and all they did was destroy human hum, humanity, right? So I'm not talking about a people. I'm not talking so so I need people to be very, very clear in this. I'm not talking about white people. I'm talking about this spirit that is dominating right now. That's and, 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 uh, that's and that's why I was saying we, we have to in fact by the way by the way, everybody these this this kind of thing every, you know I often tell students you know I I'll write in the syllabus or I'll talk I say okay we're gonna refer to this text and then students are like, well, text, does that mean book? I said, no, text is anything that can be inscribed, anything that human beings use to communicate with each other that leaves a material trace. So it can be a book. It'll be this recording. It will be uh, that documentary or anything that we create that we leave a material form of. It's, it's a text. So first of all, the conversation that we're having today is certainly not one that we haven't had before, but in terms of the proportion and balance, what we're doing now, um, I suspect as we continue and, you know, more and more narrative kind of emerges. And then this space, you know, this might be a space where we do textual reads. So people might think, well, does that mean we're going to read books? We're going to have a book conversation every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about film, yeah, because all those are texts. So what we're doing right now is beginning to engage a text. The text in this case is Exterminate All the, the Brutes, not the book by Sven Birkin, who is a professor at Harvard. In fact, this is his latest book. You had my friend Ed Baptist on, The Half Has Never Been Told. Uh, this is an, a nice companion to that book. It's called Empire of Cotton, A Global History. That's Sven Birkin. So Beckert, um, the his book, Exterminate All the Brutes is part travelogue, part historical analysis. Because he, he said, I read Conrad. And it's interesting, Professor Hunter, because I suspect you probably usefully purged Heart of Darkness from your memory because mm-hmm. you're an English scholar. So, I mean, anybody coming up, really, many people used to catch Heart of Darkness the same way some of y'all had to read like I did Lord of the Flies mm-hmm. or you know those were considered you know or uh, for that matter Robinson Crusoe which they which they saddled us with as early as elementary school but certainly by college and as an English major I suspect you had to do some work with Conrad. Conrad fell out of favor particularly in the post-colonial world because he is so racist Shout out to Ken Burns, who did a magnificent uh, <laughs> uh, piece on Ernest Hemingway. I watched it. I mean, learned well. I learned some. It's interesting because, you know, you can do those profiles of people you worship and love, even though Hemingway, who talks about how he was influenced by Jack London, is in that long line of racists. Right. Oh, Jack, and some of y'all had to read Call of the Wild by that racist Jack London, who was a straight racist. I mean, so. But these are these are the quote unquote great works. This is what they subject our children to. That's why when we see white people brutalized, it pains us because we have switched out the notion of our humanity for white humanity, which is why Brother Raul has to be very careful to enter that. 
because right now HBO, Time Warner, everybody's worried that we about to set it off, baby. I was well, so he's got that point of entry. So anyway, but go ahead. I was wondering how this thing even got made and ended up on. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know why it wasn't heavily promoted. I know why it wasn't because you know, you know, it, it's a black thing. So we're in this black space. Usually we're bombarded our Twitter feeds with tastemakers and, you know, so-called intellectuals tweeting about a thing. I didn't see it. And I looked for it because I was like, who's who's talking about this? And nobody yeah. was talking about it. And I was like, oh, this must be the truth. So I didn't yeah. know whether it was the truth. I said, we're going to have an organ organic conversation about it. I want your honest opinion. Even if I disagree with you, I think as you're talking, this is the answer because oh, what I was most of us don't have this knowledge. And because we don't have this knowledge, we are completely in the dark about what is actually happening. And so we're using these tropes to try to navigate through this pain and trauma that is being exacted upon us. A soldier yesterday maced in the street. Some, uh, you know, there's a woman that's been hemmed up for the last 11 months because a cop parked in her in her driveway and she asked him to move and he got belligerent with her. She ends up teeth knocked out in jail with three felony counts because somebody parked in her car and had the audacity to tell her he wasn't going to move. So I'm saying we're, hey, we're they're they, they, they going to do it. Right, because they can, because it's baked into the. So we're we're trying to navigate and have these marches and and you know protest and all of this, but it's like no, nah, this 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 there's something greater here. And I think if all of us awaken to the to the knowledge of what we're actually dealing with and exterminate all the brutes, or mm. any punches about what this is, and once we digest that, I think we can move a little bit, not a, a lot differently, but also yeah. now. That coupled with what we're doing in narrative, which is again the remembering of who we are, yes, juxtaposed to what we're in and who we're dealing with, the energy that we're dealing with, I think will give us the tools to be able to build the kind of life because nobody wants to be in this turmoil. You know, there there is some some bliss for somebody who is wired that way, but most of us really want happiness, freedom, you know, joy, you know, where we can find it. You know, we we want to be honest, home, that's right. You know, but this and thing we, and we can't and can't and we can't embrace justify we can explain but we can't embrace the pathology as normative as normal um i think that's one of the sources of the great outpouring of grief of empathy and of and, and kind of a, a, a moment of contemplation for those who are marking the uh transition uh of, of brother brother earl with Earl Simmons, and you know, and and you know, it's interesting because I said last week his his his, his memoir was as dark and hell is hot. And I said, oh no no no, that's that's the that's the album. I think the the memoir was actually Earl. I think he had E period A period R. It's in storage. I won't be, but but clearly this is a brother who, uh, whose journey resonated with those who have been wounded. First time I took students to South Africa, we were at the University of the Western Cape which is uh, where the Maibuye archives are. We went out there to see some of our fam who uh, runs the Maibuye. Maibuye is like, come back, Africa. So when you hear Madiba Mandela, Winnie Mandela, Maibuye, and they say, Africa, Africa, Maibuye. I mean, come back, Africa. It's almost the equivalent in tree of Sankofa. Bring it back, come back. So the Maibuye ar archives at the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town. And when we got to the gate, uh, the young brother security guard he saw us and, you know, we asked, you know, where, which way would he go? And of course, Smith, you open your mouth. It's, oh, y'all are from the States. Yeah. So the young cat said, who y'all favorite rapper? 
And so all the young people started naming these different people. He said, well, who's your favorite rapper? He said, DMX, I'm sorry. <laughs> just, just like that. I will never forget that. And everybody just bust out laughing because here are black young people from halfway around the world whose ancestors were stolen. Y'all should watch this thing. It's going it's to tear you up, but you need to be tore up. And here's this young brother whose ancestors are from the place that these Dutch invaded, then the British invaded, tried to kill them all, exterminate all the, bro the brutes. And nobody needed to translate what he meant by DMX, I'm sorry, <laughs> in one breath. Like, this isn't the nice stuff. This is the, this is a cat who, and a young brother lived, lived in one of the townships. I think he was from Kyalisha. There are several there in Cape Town. Um, Langa, Kyalisha being two of the larger ones. As, but and maybe somebody is tuning in right now from Lango Kalisha. Shout out to y'all. We love y'all. You understand? Uh, Nkosi, thank you for, 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 for joining us, Nkosa. But at any rate, what was shared was the understanding that when you hear a DMX, you're hearing somebody who's saying, I didn't ask to be born into this mess. And I don't want to stay in this mess. But I'm in this mess. And I'm not going to look away from the mess. In fact, anything come through my head gonna come out of my mouth to you. And then it resonates. And that's why I say it's very complicated because when we think about that desire to be that you just evoked, that is deep. That's the deepest thing in our being, in our spirits. And to confront the material conditions, the material reality. And Raul Peck is a fascinating brother, you know, having been able to spend just a little bit of time with him and then and then be around him in conversation with people in his craft, particularly his friends, Holly and Shriek Karima, because uh, we screened I'm Not Your Negro at Sankofa. And he had a conversation with them afterward. And of course, we got there early and then we stayed and then, you know, he's sitting around. So he's known him for years and they are actually working on, which actually now that I'm thinking about it, I got to ask Kylie and Shriek because they've been working for the last 20 years strong on a multi episode documentary history of Maroonage, global Maroonage. And they have literally thousands of hours of footage from the Great Dismal Swamp in North Carolina, tracing through Virginia, Florida, talking to scholars, looking for the best scholars and making a specific emphasis to find the black scholars. So, I mean, some very important folk, uh, many of whom are now ancestors now. I used to hear you, I mean, being one, I'm thinking about a number of people, Brackettville, Texas, then into Mexico, to the uh, Maroon communities that are still down there. And so the Seminoles, that political formation you see that opens up episode one of Exterminate All the Brutes, are very important. In fact, they are essential to that narrative because Seminole in many ways between the, the Latin-based languages, Spanish, French, is, is a gloss of a word, uh, cimarron, uh, which almost is like, wow, like that's a, that's, a, that's a label you give to animals you can't control or animals you see in the bush. And you, I can't, you know, we're going to ride this horse. No, that horse right there, that's a cimarron. That, that horse right there, wow, you can't do anything. So they, these Europeans applied that label to these Native Americans. And of course, the Africans began to seek them out. And so, for example, Holly, you know, every time I go over there, he's 
in his lab editing. It's all he doing working on this maroon thing. I mean, full time, man. I don't know how you even make other movies because he's an independent filmmaker. And this one I'm gonna talk about in terms of Raul Peck. I won't dwell on this too much, but I do want to mention this. I think it's very important. It's brilliant work, brilliant work. Um, he'll show me an interview with some of the what we would now say Seminoles, right? And they are black Seminoles, very complicated histories. They all the literature. I mean, I just, just sitting there listening. I'll read something and then come and just watch. Why? Because I'm educating myself because, you know, this is the thing with education. A lot of times, you know, at least the way I was brought up. You know, you don't ask a question that you can answer yourself when you're around master teachers. You, you answer all the questions you can answer yourself to the best of your ability. And then you ask them something based on what you've learned already. But, you know, not not that not that I mean, and no, and people say there's no such thing as a dumb question. That's true. If you don't know, you don't know. You should ask. But I'm saying I'd say because, you know, I don't want to I don't want to I want to maximize the use of this elder's time because, you know, he's working. So he'll show me these documentaries, uh, these, these 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 unedited footage. And I'm just watching. Man. I'm sitting back on the back. Just watching, watching, watching. And what you see in the beginning of the uh, exterminate all the brutes with the sister, the Seminole sister. That is the spirit of resistance in a Seminole nation. And I'm saying all that as a backdrop because in the range of text producers and what we would call filmmaking, you've got cast like the Garimas who are completely independent. They raise their money independently. The films you've seen them produce over the years are independent films. They're very well known. They've won the biggest awards, or you know, in Africa, Europe. I mean, all you know, United States, not so much, because Hollywood, you know, they they you know, and and these are filmmakers who are trained filmmakers who could have easily been the biggest names in Hollywood. You know, y'all look up something called the L.A. Rebellion. That was the group of filmmakers that Holly went to school with. You know, Larry Clark, um, um, Charles Burdett, Killer of Sheep. Some of y'all may know the other movie he made called The Glass Shield, Ice Cube was in. Uh, Julie Dash comes near the end of that time, you know, Daughters of the Dust. This company is very, very important. So anyway, I started to say this. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the names you know or may know who are kind of Hollywood orbit or Hollywood adjacent. In other words, popular black filmmakers like Tyler Perry, for example, my friend Will Packer, who's a producer. But what you don't see is the relationship between the people on that continuum, because there's often relationships. Ava DuVernay, very, very loud, very, very proud, very, very clear that, you know, her anchor model in many ways for what she wants to try to do with access to that Hollywood pipeline money is what Holly and Shriek are doing. Very close to them. Uh, Will Packer says, you know, I got I want to know y'all know Will Packer from Girls Trip. Y'all know Will Packer from Straight Out of Compton. All that Hollywood box office stuff. Will came to D.C. as I told y'all this before. And I'll keep going because I, I know I've said this. And if you go to narrative. You can see the conversation we had about that. But, you know, he came to D.C. is, you know, their little girl wants to go to Howard. She's going to be graduating soon, which is crazy because somebody she just got here. And so. You know, we 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 waiting for except the students day, the thing to start. And he says, hey, man, you know, you know, I said, uh, you know, Holly Garima's shop is across the street. He said, come on, man. He, we, he, we had to leave the leave the ceremony. He said, take me. Because he told Holly, he said, man, you're the reason I started wanting to be in film. I was an undergrad at Florida A&M and I saw Sankofa and I said, that's what I want to do. 
And that's still what I want. So when you see some of these projects that make their way to HBO and places like that, and you see some of these uh, power players, these black power players that have made their way into those conversations, and then you ask yourself, how the hell did that get? Watch the thing all the way to through till you see the names of producers and affiliated people. And I promise you, there's going there are more and more of those folk who are in conversation across that continuum who are not trying to hide it, but who have been able to parlay that into access. So Raul Peck is every is every bit the kind of independent minded thinking intellectual, really scholar on the Garima side. And he also understands the geography of how the other thing works. And unlike some people has said, I'll try it because some people, and I have the utmost respect for them in some ways, that's those of us who were HBCUs did that. You know, the easiest thing in the world for some of us would have been to color inside the lines, get the cushy job and then write all the revolutionary stuff, have it published by the big university press books, then write, you know, a kind of dear white people gloss uh, thing for popular publication and then been a public education and sit up and have to bite your lip when racists like Joe Scarborough say something crazy. But you want to keep the job. So you just keep licking your lips. I mean, I mean, so that, that, that could be the easiest thing in the world. But that's a choice. Understand. It's not a you know, it's not a philosophy. It's a choice. It's a strategic choice. So so when you see a cat like Raul Peck, that's somebody who says, I know who they are. I know what it is. But. I also understand two things. Number one, I understand that we all know that if we wanted to, we could be here. And the other thing I understand is they're not ever up on what we're doing until after we've done it. Now, what do I mean by that? And I'm glad you mentioned Justice League. I watched the four hour Snyder cut. I thought it was by an order of magnitude better than that. Whatever Joss Whedon racist ass. Shout out to the brother that played. uh, uh Stop yeah, Ray Fisher. Yes, yes. Ray Fisher was like, do the racist. Now, now I'm wondering, I'm wondering, bruh, you gonna keep working? Because you know they don't like to be called racist. Yeah, no, he's got <laughs> a new one out now called Never. They um press, they're doing a press junket. I, I thought I saw that. You have you talked to him? No, because I refused. I was like, no, nah, I'm not gonna interview okay. you or have anybody on because I don't want to give any light to it. Because I you got already you. shown who you are. And this, mm, let me I got you. Because I mean, because I mean, I thought about this, it. This is so. the fundamental question, right? We we can't keep playing footsies with, with, once we know, right? Watch out now. Well, mm, uh, can we? If we, if we, <laughs> should we? Should, should we? we? <laughs> and if we do, we need to do it strategically. Yes. Not publicly, so yes. we're not saying nothing right now. But no. I was like, when you know better, you should do better, right? So now That's I know. True. I know you are outright racist. I could have you on my show and then have a conversation about why you're an outright right racist. But they're putting up the stars. So I looked. I saw the stars. You know, they send me a list every week. You know, we're having these people come around. Do you want them? And then I looked, and then I saw produced by Joss Wheat, and I was like, hell no. Hell no. No, I'm not promoting your stuff. Not mess you, your you stuff. Right. Forget about it. It's done. Because you because you can do that. And see, this is interesting because like Raul Peck, you can walk in those worlds, but you stand on your foundation. See, I think that's the genius of that. That's the genius of what you've done and what you're doing. And how Peck is trying to do this, do that in that in that textual production world. And I mentioned that because at the intersection, and one of the things I didn't like about the uh the Snyder Cut was that they omitted the Leonard Cohen poem, Everybody Knows, which opens the Whedon version. 
It, well, it was a poem by Leonard Cohen that he set to music and then a band redid it. So you hear the little white girl at the beginning where kind of, you know, goth rendering. But if you remember the beginning of Just League, the the, the other cut that they had, the, the, the theater release, when, you know, Superman is dead, everybody's depressed, white racists is kicking over the oranges in front of the immigrant, little immigrant uh, bodega, immigrant store. The kid clearly the sister has a hijab on, so she Muslim where the little boy scared as hell. And you hear the little white girl coming in. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. That's Leonard Cohen's poem. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. And you just see, man, you got the guy's homeless. He got the little cardboard side. I tried. You see the little dog laying there sleep by. Everybody knows. Meaning what? Superman is dead. Here come the monsters from space to end it. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. See, the thing about white people is <laughs> white people like that. And I'm not talking about the majority of white people because y'all poor too. I'm talking about them people who own the means of production. See, they don't think they can ever be taken out. So part of the pathology of that attitude is that you get off on imagining what if we got taken out? Everybody knows. Yeah, everybody knows that I got all the money, but you can't do nothing about it. So I'm gonna give you a movie where we actually talk about what would be so, so depressing. You know what I'm saying? So a Raul Peck can slide in and say, <laughs> yeah, okay. Exterminate all the brutes. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, you get, can we get some more anti-racist training and maybe two more interns and maybe a couple of people on the diversity? Because, oh, oh, yeah, it, it is all true, but you can't stop us. So the thing about power is it intoxicates. And then what power, power doesn't realize it's gotten ready to be taken out until it's taken out. So, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that they're not correct. But, I am saying that when you're dealing with somebody like a Raul Peck, you know, I was introduced to Raul Peck, not even at the beginning of his career, but the the release of the film Lumumba. And I encourage you all to go say that came out on HBO, too. It is a stirring. And he based it on what's this guy's name? He's a Swede. Uh, he's got a uh, uh, look or it's called The Assassination of Patrice Lumumba is the name of his book Peck based it on that because the guy's a filmmaker but he's a literary and he's and he's a scholar he's always reading he's always studying and to hear him and highly and them start talking about historical materialism you know shades of marxism communism i mean there's a materialist rendering at the core of raul peck's work so when you you know so 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 that lumumba piece which is very i mean the guy who plays patrice lumumba my uh the enemy I can't think we'd have to look up to get the film credits, but he is so man, this thing you leave there like these Belgians ain't shit. And neither is the United States. I mean, we know that, but I think what, what Peck has begun to do is embrace the use of cinematic narrative to get the stuff in because this it's not really a documentary, it's a historical render, it's a it's a dramatic rendering, but it gets all the stuff in because he gets you in the heart. So when you see this project, you know, I'm not your Negro. Yeah, it was it was powerful. Now, you know, again, we all have our differences of opinion. I think James Baldwin, of course, brilliant. 
James Baldwin, very insightful. I also see for me, James Baldwin is limited because Baldwin is so deeply, and I'm not comparing Baldwin to DMX, but I would say just like Earl Simmons, Baldwin is trapped in this society. So his genius is applied to this question of race when it would be so much more beautiful if as an African person, and he does this, but not enough for me, apply that to not having to think about white people. See, this is why, you know, I, I appreciate DMX's genius, but how many more times if I'm going to think, I'm y'all going to make me lose my, no, I'm not going to lose my mind because I'm leaving up in here. <laughs> you understand? And I know you're trying to get out, bro. I know you, in fact, eventually you, looks like you made a choice to leave this mortal coil. But let's be clear. What I'm not going to do is spend my little time on earth every time making another variant of y'all going to make me lose my mind up in No, I need my mind. You understand? And I'm going to help you recover your mind. So at any rate, so when you see Peck, and I'm going to go too deeply into the, the documentary because I think all, much of this ties together. Um, When you see Peck at the beginning, oh, by the way, Sven Lindquist, if y'all haven't watched it, if you do go back and look, even if you have, go back to episode one. As it opens and then you see the people he collaborated with, you see his name first, Raul Peck. And you see in collaboration with Sven uh, Lindquist, which of course that's Conrad's Heart of Darkness, the last part of that novel where the guy says, you know, exterminate all the brutes. The Kurtz makes the report. That's my recommendation: exterminate all the brutes. We got to wipe this place clean, and that is the mentality of that colonial invasion of Africa. That is the mentality that you see, for example, uh, that animates the final report in the Great Chinuai Chebe, his novel Things Fall Apart. When the British colonial agent is like, yeah, this is just a little minor thing. These cats is in jail and in a conquering them. We're going to get rid of them. I mean, you know, in other words, you're coming in. You don't see any human beings. There are no humans here. The great Sylvia Winter, the great uh, uh, Caribbean philosopher. No humans allowed. There are no humans here. <laughs> you know, we are the humans. We're coming in. And so uh, you see Sven Lindquist, whose book. Written as kind of a travelogue going through the desert. While he's in North Africa, the Sahel, really, well, not the Sahel, above the Sahel, Sahara in the desert. And then he's pairing that with all these examples of genocide. He's looking at all these texts and he's giving you a sense of how these people came and did this. This is the rationale. He's really reading it through, among others, uh, the philosopher Hannah Arendt, who says that this kind of fascism, this kind of totalitarianism, this kind of um, this kind of notion of uh, uh, um, European expansion. Mm created, had to create the ideology of racism. The ideology of racism was developed, in fact, to justify that. And people say, well, you know, like people will say, for example, oh yeah, slavery has been all over the world. Okay, everybody pause. I'm gonna give y'all a couple of, next time somebody open their mouth say something crazy like that to you. <laughs> I want y'all to start with two books. Benjamin Isaac, The Invention of Racism in Classical Antiquity, you know, black people involved in what the Greeks and the Romans did. And I'm saying, you, I mean, you ain't got to run out and get these books, but I want you to know about them. And then ask this person who says, oh, slavery was there. Well, people have mistreated everybody all since human history. See, that's the kind of pullback generalization that allows whiteness to thrive. The power of whiteness is in its invisibility. Well, everybody's done it to everybody. So this, mm -mm. not in this specific form. This y'all, cuz, uh, not, not cousin. This you great, great grandchildren. 
that probably shouldn't have walked up into that part of the ball and get trapped in an ice age. In other words, there are some choices we made as Africans we might want to revisit when we pull back into what they do, David Christian called big history. One of them may have been the decision we shouldn't have walked up in there because the adaptation to a place that was so severe created cultures of, uh, that are organized around scarcity, that are organized around violence, that are organized around hierarchy, whether it be gender hierarchy, class hierarchy, in different ways than places where the uh, the material conditions aren't as austere. Now, let me pause there because I don't want anybody to hear from that, that everybody from any place is guaranteed to act a certain way based on that. That's not true. What I'm saying is that um, we have to be very careful and we have to be very developed in how we analyze the formation of human societies. And then that requires scholarship. That's what we'll say. Benjamin Isaac, who is a professor, was a professor at um, the University of Tel Aviv, has written this book. And I think this book is probably the beginning of the, the arts. So let me see. This is, uh, yeah, 2004. And, you know, he's talking about Greece and Rome and how this differentiation starts. And, and, and some of it, as you can imagine, and you might suspect from somebody who is a professor from the University of Tel Aviv, is organized around anti-Semitism as it emerges in these societies, ultimately in terms of Roman society. And you know, the Gauls, the Germans, the Jews, it's very important. Now, if you want to bring that a little bit forward to closer to where Peck is talking about, this book just came out. This is Geraldine Hing. She's at the University of Texas, Austin. It's called The Invention of Race in the, in the European Modern Age, in Middle Ages, rather. So she's really going in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. So you're talking about the period that ultimately will give birth to what they call the Renaissance, then the Enlightenment. So this is the, this is the, these are the materials that Peck is working his way through. As Basically, let me just make this very plain. Let's be clear. These people were doing it to each other, to each other. The question of othering, there was no Africans around. And what Hing does is go through, she eventually, in fact, I'll just read the blurb for y'all who can, you know, so you can get a sense. In the invention of race in the European Middle Ages, Geraldine Hang questions the common assumption that race and racism only began in the modern era. Examining Europe's encounters with Jews, Muslims, Africans, Native Americans, Mongols, and the Romani, so-called gypsies, don't be using the word gypsies, it's, that's, a, that's a slur. From the 12th through the 15th centuries, she shows how racial thinking, racial law, racial practices and racial phenomena existed in medieval Europe before a recognizable vocabulary of race emerged in the West. Analyzing sources in a variety of media, texts, in other, in other words, including stories, maps, statuary, illustrations, architectural features, history, saints, lives, religious commentaries, laws, political and social institutions and literature. She argues that religion so much in play to, again today enabled the, po the positing of fundamental differences among humans that created strategic essentialisms to mark off human groups and populations for racialized treatments. Now, someone would say, well, everybody had religion. Pause. I have a brilliant student at Howard Law. We finished class Wednesday night and we stayed on for an hour after. I was just listening to her talk through. Uh, she's first generation born in the U.S. No, wasn't born in the U.S. First generation to be raised here. Basically came, I think, around nine or ten. Uh, her people are Nigerian. She's Yoruba and Muslim. It's an interesting combination. And we were we were we were talking through ways of knowing in that category in our African studies framework, ways of knowing that are African and the and the distinction between them and some of the specific conversations. She was talking a lot about Ifa. She did some early work about Ifa in undergrad, and then uh, she talked about how she wrote her thesis on uh, um, 
Lukumi, was it Lukumi or was it Santeria? But because she also uh, is fluent in Spanish, which helps. She's also she's doing work around immigration, immigrant law. I mean, this is, very, this is why we have to have our young people trained and grounded in culture. Because you want a lawyer that's coming in, it's going to defend you in immigration court who maybe speaks Spanish, but also as someone who is deeply grounded in Africana ways of knowing, also understands that you Afro-Cuban. <laughs> you understand? Or you Puerto Rican, you Afro-Puerto Rican. You know, there's another element there i mean and, and, and so you know first rate skills i mean there's gonna be a powerful lawyer but we're talking about ways of knowing and i asked her she's seen this book by um um Oludamini, uh Ogunneke, which is a uh, deep knowledge ways of knowing in sufism and ifa two west african intellectual traditions and she said you know i just saw a lecture by him so we started talking about this why do i mention this in relation to europe and this whole question that professor hang is saying well you know religion was granted so, oh well then everybody has religion so religion tolerance is universal I, I, no, not an E5. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Well, the Muslims, yeah, there's gonna be racial, there's gonna be racial problems in Islam as well. But if you look at Islam, particularly the way that uh Professor Ugunaki, who is at uh University of Virginia, I think, is writing, he's talking about Sufism. That's a different kind of strain. You know, you got the Sufis, particularly in what he's in Senegal doing the comparison. It's a different gloss. There, there are gonna be ways of knowing that are. In Europe, intolerance is at the core of these ways of knowing. So when you see something that's not intolerant, you call it tolerant. But you see how that binary works? So they would say, well, there's, there's tolerance in these societies. No, these societies are human. And your behavior is inhuman. <laughs> but what you've done is inverted so that you make these intolerant paradigms the definition of humanity. You may, and then that means that what I do is human and none of y'all are human. Meaning like Professor Winter says, Sylvia Winters, no humans allowed. No, 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 I'm not allowed. No humans involved means I didn't do anything to a human being. I didn't beat up a human being. I didn't park my car in the driveway of a human being. I didn't uh, put my knee on the neck of a human being. This was a cow. This was a sheep. Yes, it lives. Yes, it breathes, but it's not human, which is why. George Floyd's, I'm sorry, this is why Derek Chauvin's lawyer, Nelson, listen to, I mean, listen to the conversations that Professor Hunter is having every day about this case. You know, uh, Angie Porter is live tweeting the case. I'm looking at what, what that, what that lawyer is doing is saying, it's one of y'all in this jury box who knows that there were no humans involved. Mm. And so I know the experts have all the people who see George Floyd as human, very clear very clearly say, yeah, it wasn't heart disease. It wasn't meth. It wasn't any of those things that killed George Floyd. But see, y'all looking at the wrong thing. The humans are following logic. I'm talking to the one of you in the box, maybe more, but hopefully just one. That's all I need. Who I'm saying to you, that's right, sir. No humans involved. That's right, sir. No humans involved. But I'm not saying no humans involved. What I'm saying is, that's right, sir. Meth. That's right, sir. Heart disease. That's right, sir. Sitting on the hood of a Benz. That's right, sir. Cricket $20 bill. That's right, sir. No humans involved. So no matter how much evidence, it's like, did you kneel on the neck of that pig and kill that pig? Did you kneel on the neck of that sheep? You had a hamburger last night, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. Do you feel like somebody should be put in jail for killing that cow and grinding up the cow for you to eat? No. Well, then why in the hell are you wasting my time? Got this human being on trial for killing a cow. In other words, you have to understand the logic. 
involved. And so when people say this is an outrage, if 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 they're acquitted, I'm not saying he's the guy's going to be acquitted. But if he walks, and people say that's it, you have misunderstood what Raul Pat trying to make you understand. There are no humans involved. <laughs> in the project of Western expansion. And the fact that he's using Sven Bickert uh, and Hannah Arendt's philosophy that this whole thing is based on dehumanizing, that's that's Beckert. There are two, there are there are three. There are two others who are credited as in collaboration with him on this, whose, whose voices are in this. One is the great Haitian scholar. Who I mentioned very quickly in passing when we talk about the Haitian Revolution, uh, Michelle Rolf uh, Trujillo. Mm -hmm. Trujillo so important because he, like we were talking about CLR James, and we we're talking about uh, 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 Fouché and the the Haitian Maroons. Trujillo, and he's got a new book. Well, it's not a new book. He he made transition in 2012, but uh, far too young in his early 60s. But Trujillo uh, has written extensively on the cultural grounding of Haitian identity. In fact, his 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 most famous book is called Silencing the Past. Mm -hmm. You know, and so uh but he actually he actually worked on it's a nice little volume. Oh yeah, here it is with Emmanuel Wallerstein and a number of other cats. Um V.Y. Mudembe, the Congolese scholar who I, I, I find Mudembe fascinating. My my Jegna Theophilo Benga, not less so. He's <laughs> obey you say about Mudembe. Yeah, they got him when he was a little boy and got him up in that monastery and turned his might out with Christianity. And he put all his brilliance toward and try to get out that trick bag. And so we kind of, you know, that's my that's my uh, uh American Ebonics gloss of his French uh, rendering. But they were all on this commit com uh, commission on the restructuring of the social sciences. So um Trujillo is part of this. And it's interesting, uh, Calestis Juma from Kenya was on it. Evelyn Fox Keller in the United States does some good stuff on class. But the whole idea is, what they're saying is, and Trujillo was one of these cats, is this whole system of education has to be remade. And so they say, you know, over the last century, particularly after 1945, in at the university level and then trickling down, but shaped these academic disciplines are created to order knowledge so that that knowledge can be used to continue to plow back into this hierarchy. He says, so you got to say, so you got to dismantle these disciplines. Now that may be counterintuitive for y'all who think, well, you're talking about Africana studies. And I say it is a discipline, but it's not a discipline like political science. What I say is when you say Africana studies, you know what you've done? You've revealed that all the rest of the fields are white studies. This is, see, this is, oh, I'm in philosophy. No, you're in white studies. I'm in political science. No, you're in white studies. Why? Because what are the anchors? What are the assumptions? No humans involved. That's why you call it third world countries. That's why you say these people are undeveloped or underdeveloped. The language is no humans involved. That's what Trujillo and them was trying to say. Go ahead, Prof, jump in. No, I'm just, I'm, and I broke down Trujillo's name because he said knowledge is power. Yes. But history is the fruit of power. And whoever wins in the end gets to frame the story. And narrative was born out of that. So, you know, every week we come in, we do these Saturday classes, and now we're doing even more scholarship. And it's not even scholarship. It's just again re reframing That's right. what what. So what I saw in, in this in this documentary was exactly what we've been doing every week, and it is slowly cracking away this this indoctrination into all of the lies and the mythology around. 
the origin story, the the what is it called, the, the, the doctrine of discovery. You know, yes. And, and so I just want to again, I just can't thank you enough because this space, the narrative space, which I was in this weekend um, before I got on, you I could spend ten years in there learning. I mean, like right now, no yeah, right now I could just spend ten years going down rabbit holes, and it still won't fill in the blanks of what has been taught throughout our school system. And I just want, how damaging is that for all of us who've gone through, you know, even the 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 guy that I spoke with, um, his name is Kamal Bell, the founder of San Sankofa, went to Catholic school, you know, and he talked about, you know, having to, to understand the problem with, with, you know, the Catholic church saying, well, we, we, we're gonna say that the savages are okay. They're human beings, but the Africans are not. Like they made a compromise while they were serving God with our lives, with our children, with our with our humanity, with our future. They made a compromise in the church at the Vatican about Ooh. our in about our inability to be humans. Right. And we're still suffering through it right now. And we 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 take the blood and the host and the Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not. No, 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 no. Let's let's let's. I love that phrase that you. In fact, we had to have a hoodie with that one on it because I rock that. Let's sit in that. Just for you got to sit in it, right? You got to sit in it. And then the and then the criminal becomes the hero. How does Bartholomew de la Casa? Some of y'all had to read this devastation of the Indies. Who's a partner in crime? With. Cristobal Colon or Cristofolo Colombo as the Italians would call him or Colon in Spanish but then the English are the last to come in with the guns blazing and when they win the story they rewrite everything and all of a sudden he becomes Christopher Columbus a name he wouldn't have recognized because as Truyo says the winner writes the narrative and as uh, Raul Peck says at the beginning framing the whole documentary enterprise you know this really isn't about um power in the sense that it is about power it's all about power but it isn't about class the way we've been taught about it it isn't about you know the relational dynamics of of, of class it, it's really about narrative and there is no such thing as alternative facts that's the materialist slip in there right the facts are what happened your gloss on it is a narrative so the, so, the, so 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 in this narrative we say Christopher Columbus like you say who is Christopher Columbus Christopher Columbus is an invention he's a trope Yes, the living, breathing person, but, you know, he, this, he's more important as, as, as a symbol. It's a symbol of, 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 of an incursion, of a, of a devastation. And La Casa, to your point, Professor Hunter, La Casa comes in, the priest, and says, oh, this is terrible what we're doing to the Native Americans. Please, let's not do it to them. I mean, they're not us. So, you know, you're cutting off some of their heads, kicking them like footballs and soccer balls. And, yeah, you coughed on them. And now you done wiped out millions, didn't even know you killed them all. Yes, they don't have a, 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 a two sticks like this for us. So they're savages. So you've taken them out of humanity. But in the ranking, let's not do this. To them. Let's go get these Africans. And, of course, the Pope with the crown of the white crown of Upper Kemet on his head. Come on, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, go over the narrative. We're gonna, I mean, we get Mario Beatty started. Don't, in fact, we, we have a conference later on this afternoon, Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. He's doing a talk on Agnaton. He's done this whole, he's done all these original translations. He's gone back and looked at all this stuff. Oh, by the way, they just found this is what I love about our people. 
See, the reason we can't explore, as Mario always reminds us, the reason we can't explore ancient Egypt is because modern Egypt sitting on top of it in terms of Cairo. So the stuff is, but then every other day they finding something else because the vet, like what you see in Egypt now that you can see the temples, the tombs, pyramids and stuff, that's a fraction. That's like what? I mean, as some scholars might say as little as two, three percent. You can't see the stuff, but then they always stumbling on something else. So uh, while we've been in lockdown, they have been uh, quietly excavating and they released the uh, press release uh, earlier. Well, this past week. Something they're calling the Golden City, because that's Zahi Hawass, the great carnival marker of Egyptian Egyptology in Egypt and Henry Louis Gates of Egypt. Uh, you know, hey, the greatest. Okay, I right, everybody calm down. But this is great because this is this is this city that Jehudi most. I'm sorry, not Jehudi most. That um, I'm in Hotep the third and T, that sister and brother, uh, the grandparents of Tutankhamun, you know, as King Tut. Uh, the parent, uh, the the parents in terms of the royal descent of Akhenaten, who Mario's going to talk about a little bit later this afternoon. This is the city. That was constructed while they were in charge and the place is huge and we were laughing about it last night because mario was like man we was just there i said no we left mednet habnu which is ramses the third's temple and it's between mednet habnu and the so-called colossi of memnon colossi of memnon are these two big statues of amenhotep the third that were in front of a, of a of a palace not a palace a temple construct that's not there anymore they still because it's under the mud and the silt it's kind of thing and those of you who remember uh ozymandias See, this is this is how the Europeans do. They take all the stories, remix them, put some Greek Roman gloss on them, give them to you. And then your children running around thinking they know something about Greek mythology and Roman mythology when it's a lot of it is ripped off Egyptian mythology. So y'all remember that poem? Uh, in fact, y'all saw Avengers, right? Ultron, Age of Ultron and all that stuff. In the comics, the first time the Avengers destroyed Ultron, I was a kid, maybe 12, 13 years old. The last panel of the ep of the issue of the Avengers after Ultron was killed, they cut his head off and kicked his head out. Is in a, they show this little boy in a garbage dump kicking stuff around, and he comes up on the head of Ultron and he kicks the head of Ultron, and then he picks up the head of Ultron, and you see the spark come up in his eyes. Oh shit, he's about to bring Ultron back. And then he calls himself playing with one of the ears, and the ear breaks off, and then you see the light go out, and he drops it. And kicks it and then starts looking around in the red. Like, in other words, Ultron now been neutralized. The kid finished the job. But for each panel as he's going through the dump, and then when he gets to Ultron and picks it up, the panel, the gold panel, you know, like comic books, you looking at the pictures, then the, then the word bubble, the word bubble, rectangular, meaning it's not his thoughts, it's not coming out of anybody's mind. It's just a, a companion piece, like if a narrator were narrating a movie, says, uh, there was a traveler from an unknown land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them in the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies and on the pedestal these few words remain my name is ozamandius king of kings look on my work ye mighty and despair round the colossal wreck the lone and level sand stretch far away now for those of you who say are y'all reading these kind of books see that's the that's george gordon lord byron you know what i'm saying marvel is putting that language in to say Ultron is the fallen king Ozymandias. But you don't know who they talking about until you realize Ozymandias. Oh, that's Greek, is it? The model was the Egyptian pharaohs because they fell. Ramses II, son of Seti I, his stuff is on the ground. There are a few temples left. But Egypt fell. 
And guess what? It ain't come back. Greece fell. Guess what? It ain't come back. Rome fell. Guess what? It ain't come back. United States gonna fall. Guess what? It's not coming back. In other words, about the only people on the planet who looking like, yeah, we can fall and get back up. Probably the Chinese, you know, <laughs> just there. But you know, because they think been unbroken for like three thousand years. But I'm I'm raising all that to say this: when you look then at the Egyptian, like I said, they just found this golden city, right? So now you excavate and you see, damn, this is incredible. All this stuff is here, and they look at this stuff has been. And so we can't wait to get back. So when we think about how these society, how, how this all connects to the society, to, to what we're talking about now with in terms of uh, exterminate all the brutes, the language we learn in school, the miseducation we got ties all of these conversations to the history of Europe, which is a very recent history. And so when you see La Casa, the, the Catholic priest go to the church and say, do it to the Africans. Don't do it to the Native Americans. We read that now like he was a hero. No, no, he's not a hero. He's saying we are human. The Native Americans are not, but they're closer to us. And what we're doing is really about our souls. And these Africans are not human. They ain't on the hierarchy at all. So go get them. Fast forward. All the way from 1493, 1494 to 1974. Francis Ford Coppola. The meeting Don Corleone is in with the mobs and the guy gets up and says, yeah, we don't want this drugs, but we're going to have to deal with it. So we just keep the traffic with the darker people. I would have in my city, I would have it traffic among the coloreds. They're animals anyway. So let them lose their souls. And then Earl Simmons, who gets a hot shot when he's a child, ends up, y'all going to make me lose my mind. Or who is y'all? Them white people. <laughs> Not his homies. Because <laughs> the homies didn't bring that stuff in. They made that decision for you. And guess why the Italians were making the decision? Or better yet, the Sicilians. Because guess what? There's a racial hierarchy among them as well. Sicily's an island. La Cosa Nostra. Look at the history of that. A lot of that is protection society. That's why the little village is against the little village over here. The little village. All this stuff is beefs because everybody, in fact, what did, uh, what's the little guy that made uh, Casino and uh, what's his name? Um, Gangs in New York. Uh, Scorsese. <laughs> Go look at Ken Burns' documentary on New York when, when Martin Scorsese says, you know, my parents were upset when I wanted to marry this girl, because we came, we were in two different tenement houses down there on the Lower East Side. And as far as they were concerned, that meant we were from two different countries because our, our people were from two different villages in Sicily. So, I mean, this notion of othering is deep. So anyway, what unifies all of that? At least enough for people to say we're all together in Europe against them is religion. And Catholicism is the original European religion. I'm sorry. European version of Christianity. Protestants come later. I'm saying I have to say this to tie it all together. La Casa's plea is as much about who's a Christian and who's not, because he wants to convert the Indians. And in fact, they would bless the boats for the Africans. And so we got to bring you into Christianity. That racial hierarchy is so deeply tied in the religious hierarchy, which is what Hing is saying, that when you look at this documentary, what you begin to see is you might think it's Christianity, 
And you might get up in your church and sing in Christ. There is no east or west. Oh, there's a east and a west and there's a north and a south. In fact, there's a first, second and third place. In fact, you in last place. In fact, God is white and you should get on your knees and thank God that white people decided to invite you into this religion because otherwise you would be worshiping as Vachel Lindy wrote in his poem in the 20s that Langston Hughes was so impressed by this guy. He slipped him a few poems when he was a busboy here in D.C. as Vachel Lindsay wrote in his poem, The Congo. Then I saw the Congo widening down the track. What were they doing? They were worshiping mumbo jumbo, God of the Congo and all the other gods of the Congo. You know, that's all them. That's all that belief system you got. Because if you're not in the fun, I know some of y'all is getting real nervous right now. You should get nervous as hell. And as John Henry Clark just say, don't get mad, get smart. Because I'm not talking about spirituality. I'm talking about racial hierarchy, miseducation, whiteness as a force. And when Raul Peck says it's not class is important, all that stuff's important. But what is important is power and European expansion created habits of thought and political precedents that made way for new outrages. Because once that thing is in place, it can go on autopilot if you if you if you miseducate people. It is the roots of what happened in the Holocaust. It is the, in the German Holocaust, the, the Holocaust against the, uh, the Jews uh, and the Roma, the so-called gypsies and blacks. Read Furpo Carr's book, Hitler, Hitler's Black Victims, No Relation. Furpo Carr, C-A-R-R, spelled the same. Our people came out the same plantation. But what, 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 what Peck is doing is helping us understand. And so I want to just conclude, or not even conclude, really transition a little bit. And thank you, Professor Hunter. It was Ludo DeWitt. I see you put it in the chat. That's the guy who wrote the Lumumba book. Right? So uh, that, yeah, that Peck based his film on. What we are watching in Heart of Darkness should remind us. And I love this. I love this as well. I love this as well. Um, Exterminate all the boots. Exter I'm sorry. Heart of Darkness. I, keep, I, yeah, I skipped over Exterminate All the Boots right away to the text. Right. What, what we're watching is something some things we knew many times we don't want to confront it and you know it's interesting you, you, you know somebody said you once you know we already know enough we don't mm -hmm. but we know a lot but what we lack often is the courage to understand what we know and then to draw conclusions and do something about it so the documentary will introduce some new information, but if you're not going to act on it and acting on it doesn't mean just being more woke, aware. Mm -mm. Now, it's going to be some pain involved in this. There's going to be some pain involved. And what Peck is doing is what he's done his whole career, public facing career, is bet that this system can't grasp the complexity. And just like the, that young man said to us, DMX, I'm sorry. He can put it right there on you and everybody see, because we feel this. There's a feeling that comes from this. And so, in fact, let me let me let me sit in this for just about three or four seconds, because what is emerging as I get my o'clock, we've been going about an hour so we can spend maybe 20 minutes on Paul Robeson, I think. It would be good. Yesterday was his birthday. It'd been 123rd birthday. Uh, for those of you who are in narrative, you know, shortly at some point. No, now. We, oh, it's ready now? Yes, you should know. Uh, there's a whole section that includes um, the discussion we had on S.E. Roberson. 
Oh, yes. Okay, as well. Benjamin, uh, I even did a discussion with uh, another professor on Plessy from Plessy versus Ferguson. So the S.E. Robeson conversation that we had is available now in Narrative. So sign up. Narrative. Let's do that. Narrative. No question. Com. All right. There she go. That's right. In fact, this is the picture, the photograph that Barbara Ransby used for the cover of her book on Eslanda. That's S.E. Robeson right there. Uh, but we had a long conversation about Islam, who is amazing. Um, this is actually the program booklet that was the celebration of Paul Robeson's 75th birthday. Harry Belafonte and put that together. Paul Robeson Jr. was the force. In fact, let me just let me move to that because it's important for us to stand, understand Paul Robeson on a, in a moment when we see, uh, you know, an Earl Simmons make transition. Because Paul Robeson was a bigger star than DMX ever was. And Jay-Z is today. There is no star right now. Maybe a Michael Jackson. You know, but maybe not. Because Paul Robeson couldn't go. Paul and Eslanda Robeson couldn't go anywhere in the world. And not be mobbed. And I'm talking about including Russia, including China. There's a mountain in Russia named for Paul Robeson. It's a, he has a complicated, complicated, complicated legacy. And um, he was so famous. So what I want to do is just take a moment to talk about him on this birthday weekend and, and pull some things together. I pulled so much stuff on Robeson that we won't be able to talk about much of it today. But I want to at least put him on the table because and, you know, shout out to my friends as well from Teacher for Change because uh, we've had several conversations on Robeson over the year. And by the way, that, that little two minute thing I did. You know, that was a year ago, year ago yesterday, as this plague hit and we all got sequestered and sheltered in place. Uh, what we're doing now, what we see now and, and everything that we're developing now really began with where we're forced to do something different. So whereas these are conversations that I would have normally been having with a classroom of students with all kind of life worries and coming from work and got to go to the next class and scribbling some stuff down and then asking, is this going to be on the test? That world is gone, gone, baby, gone. And so now this is a conversation we're having with the world and it's a beginning conversation, hence the breadcrumb metaphor. So um, Paul Robeson, born in Princeton in 1898, April 9th, 1898. Um, interestingly enough, his father, in fact, this is a book that, uh, in fact, let me show you. This is Here I Stand. Paul Robeson published a memoir in 1950, wrote it in 57, 58. This was published in 1958. This actually is a copy uh, that by this time, Paul, Paul and S.D. Robeson, the United States government had taken their passports. They had, they had been without passports for the decade. So then near the end of the decade and Paul Robeson said, the artist must stand for something. I had no alternative. This is, I had to do it this way. And so by that, Paul Robeson went from being the biggest star in the world, recording artist. Um, I'm not even talking about his very early life, star student, um, Rutgers University scholarship, Phi Beta Kappa, uh, star of the football team, goes off to NYU law school, uh, transfers after semester to Columbia Law School, gets a law degree while he's in law school, falls in love with his wife, 
the woman who become his life wife is Londa, which I encourage y'all. Y'all, if y'all not in narrative, sign up for narrative, please. This conversation about Islanda, trust me, trust me. The professor tell you it's a whole. It's it really. She what a remarkable force. Um, she was, and in fact, in many ways, if not for her, we might not know Paul Robeson. In fact, it's probably a good chance we wouldn't because she was the one that was like, I know you don't like really practicing law. They racist the law firm. The guy wants you to open up a branch in Harlem so you don't have to be around the white people. You frustrated. You playing pro football on the weekends. He playing pro football on the weekends for a little extra pocket change, playing against cats like Jim Thorpe. That's right. The Native American Jim Thorpe. These cats is playing professional. In fact, that's how they took Jim Thorpe's Olympic medals. They say he was playing professional sports on the weekend. White people got all kind of rules when it's uh, them. Shout out Matt Gates. And then they got other rules when it's you. Shout out all of us who are not Matt Gates. Although if Matt Gates goes down, it's just as a sacrificial lamb because there ain't nobody going to jail who's a member of the federal legislature who was suborning the overthrow of the federal government. Young Josh Hawley, Raphael Edward Cruz, <laughs> all <of> y'all, <laughs> you cats is good. Why? Hey, I'm white. It's all good. It's all good. But at any rate, Robeson, they get married, goes on. So we ain't even talking about the early part. We talking about after he's acting, he's doing some early stuff. And then Essie is like, I'm going to manage you because Aslanda was a scientist. She was a trained scientist. And in fact, they met because he had busted, uh, busted up part of his body and knee, I think. And he, they were in, he, she, he was in uh, the hospital and she, that's, you know, they talk and they started talking because she was working in the hospital. So at any rate, then we began to know Robeson. and Robeson begins to become this huge recording artist, becomes a huge, plays Othello in London, all these things. And I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. I got my eye on the clock again, as I said. And then, they, then he starts taking political stands. In fact, let me just go through the chronology a little bit because he writes about in here. That's where I, that's why I picked this up. By the time 1958 comes around, though, they've tried to break the Robesons. By they, I mean this whole system. They formed like Voltron against him for reasons we'll talk about in a minute. And so this book, Here I Stand, was originally not published by a major publishing house. In fact, this copy, I'm going to show you. In fact, I got to put these other books down because I don't, I don't really, I, I keep another working copy, the one I'm going to show you in a minute, but what that says? Othello Associates. That's Paul Robeson and his friends raised the money mm. to publish this. Then the publisher picks it up later, and that's Beacon Press. Here I stand. This is the this is the one they published uh, a little bit later. Lloyd Brown, his accompanist, did the forward in this in 1971. This is the copy when uh, maybe about three years ago. No, longer than that. Three, four. Anyway. Nick Cannon and I were talking because Nick is, you know, again, I'm looking for these examples of people who were entertainers, who were celebrities, but then who used that platform to do other kind of stuff. It's, oh, man, you know, you know what? Here, let's get this. We walked over to Sankofa. He's in, okay. So you read Here I Stand, and next week we chopped it up about Here I Stand. We're just sitting and talking about this. What you think about this? And he's walking through. Paul Robeson begins this, uh, begins this small, it's a slim volume, just over 100 pages. Uh, chapter well, prologue, a home in that rock. He talks about his father, and Paul Robeson says, The story, the glory of my boyhood years was my father. I loved him like no one in all the world. His people, among whom he moved as a patriarch for many years before I was born, loved him too. And the white folks, even the most lordly of aristocratic Princeton, had to respect him. Born a plantation slave in Martin County, North Carolina, my father, William Robeson escaped at the age of 15 in 1860 and made his way north on the Underground Railroad in 1876 after working his way through Lincoln University 
he married my mother, Maria Louisa Bustle, a school teacher in nearby Philadelphia. I'll pause there. Now, y'all may remember the Paul Robeson, the big Paul Robeson movie that came out of Hollywood about, wait, 10, 15? Oh, yeah, never years ago. Why? Paul Robeson been gone since 1976. They still won't touch Paul Robeson. <laughs> and guess what? I'm glad because can't none of y'all play Paul Robeson. You would be better off watching Paul Robeson's movies. Watch them movies, even the bad ones, the ones where he felt like, oh, y'all tricked me, like uh, Saunders of the River. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, or better yet, get the one he made with Oscar Oscar Michaud. Come on, y'all. Ain't nobody trill like Oscar Michaud today. Oscar Michaud out in the middle of nowhere. He out there in Dakotas. You understand? Making movies, roasting the clan, the homesteader uh, uh, within our gates. And then here come Essie negotiating, comes to... Uh, Oscar Michaud and say, man, you need to get my man in the movie. You know he's the man. <laughs> you making these movies showing the clan for who they are and dealing with miscegenation and you, man, you not playing. Black people escaping lynchings and shooting back and shit. Yeah, well, yeah, well. I'm making this movie about this crooked preacher and how these people take advantage of our people. My husband can play that. Go watch Paul Robeson in Body and Soul. Get Body and Soul. You won't be sorry. So at any rate, his father escapes enslavement, goes to Lincoln University, HBCU. Then he marries this sister out of Philly. She's a school teacher. I'm going to tie this right quick. Her sister, Paul Robeson's auntie, a bustle as well, her name was Gertrude. Gertrude and Maria were sisters. Gertrude was a scholar too. Gertrude was a writer. Got Gertrude wrote a whole thing on at black women back at the turn of the century. Gertrude's sister, Paul Robeson's mother, dies in a fire when he's a little boy. She dies in a fire. He's there. It's, it's horrific. His father has to raise all of them. His brother Ben, his sister, all of them. He has to raise the children alone. He loses his pastorate. White folks turn on him. He eventually claws his way back into another one. He's he's for a time he's hauling rubbish, trash. He's doing he's the glory of my childhood years was my father, Pop. And Pop, man, Pop was no joke. He put them, them boys and girls through their drills, boys and girls through their drill. I mean, they were top scholars, all three of them. And so the reason I mention his auntie is because. His auntie married a cat, a, a medical doctor named Mossel, and uh, Nathaniel Mossel, who was a medical doctor in Philly. They had a couple of daughters, one of whom was named Sadie Tanner Mossel. Sadie Mossel um, was the cousin of Paul Robeson. Sadie Mossel Tanner Alexander, who eventually married a cat named Raymond Pace Alexander. In fact, I think I have Raymond Pace Alexander, one of the biographies here. My man, uh, my old uh, Ohio State classmate, Dave Canton, actually wrote a bio on uh, him. I thought I had it around here, but I don't want to put my hands on it. Anyway, um, she became the first black woman to get a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. In fact, I was up there uh, in last February for they did a reparations conference. And I and, you know, I lived in Philly for so long and I, I was there. I said, you know, I always love coming in this building and the shout out to the Penn Black Law Students Association. It was a great conference y'all put on. I said, you know, one of the reasons I love about it, when you walk in this building, there is this huge oil portrait of Sadie Tanner. 
Asani Mossel, Tana Alexander, because uh, Sadie was the truth. And you know, she's Paul Robeson's cousin, so I can't be mad at that. Robeson lived in West Philly the last 10 years of his life. So let me let me continue uh, very quickly. So he uh, goes to school there in Somerville, Somerville High School. They move from Princeton to Somerville. He graduates at the top of his class. He gets a four-year scholarship to Rutgers. He's, he actually starts acting in high school. I mean, he's a tall dude, like 6'3", uh, but he reaches his full height. He's about 215, great athlete. Um, his father makes transition in 1918 before the son graduates from college. Broke his heart. But he said, I got to, I got to, you know, wipe my tears. My big brother Ben is here. We're going to, you want to keep move, keep it moving. I'm doing this for pop. I'm doing this for pop. His rest of his, in fact, he writes in here, I stand. He said, you know, at the end of my life, I look back. If I lived a life where I could look at my father and my father would look at me and say, I'm proud. Now I know that. I know that feeling. My man, Lawrence Jackson at Johns Hopkins, who we went to grad school together at Ohio State. He was at Emory for a while. Before that, he was at Howard University. He really didn't want to leave Howard. It's a whole nother story. HBCUs, boy, they'll stick a knife in you quick. But anyway, uh, Larry wrote a book called, uh, on, on searching for fathers because he grew up in the household with his father. I grew up in the household with mine. And that's the last time I was on MSNBC when they came to Howard's campus to talk about prop the crisis in black America, you know how we are, no humans involved. So we just going to talk about y'all like y'all not human. Cause you're not really, this is about us. How can we feel better about ourselves for your condition? That's all the whole literature, anti-racism. I'm sorry, y'all, but let's just say what it is. And so at the peak of it, they gave me the microphone. I said, I knew my father and this man right here, he know, he knew his father. And so, he, you know, in other words, but I, I, I know what I know what Paul Robeson was saying. If I live my life in the end and, and Haywood Carr say that was a good job, son. So I know what DMX I know. I know everybody who who would want that, but wouldn't even know what to look where to look for it because it was displaced. I know what that feels like. We all have. So anyway, Robeson's father makes transition. He graduates he goes to uh goes to college like i'm uh, a graduate from college he lettered in 15 sports and hey i'm going to kind of speed this up because there's so much more he go, he goes to new york like i said he's at columbia in 1920 he starts acting he's at the colored y which is still there on 135th street um he's in a play called simon the cyrenian uh he starts playing like i said pro football on the weekends. You can do that kind of thing. He encounters Fritz Pollard. Those of you know any NFL history, talk about all oh, the black people came into the first black players. Now go back to Fritz Pollard. We started talking about organized blacks. Um, and it's interesting because, oh, this is a chance to show y'all something that, oh, because people talk about the biography of Paul Robeson. I'm going to show y'all this, but I'm not necessarily going to recommend it. Martin Duberman is considered the, this is considered the definitive biography on Paul Robeson. That's cute. But when you look at other stuff, what you realize, why did you leave this out? Or maybe you didn't know about this. There was a book. Mm -mm 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 -mm, I got so much. Ah, ha, ha. There was this sister named Shirley Graham. Shirley Graham wrote, a, I guess we call it YA now, young adult stuff on uh, historical figures. She wrote a bio on Paul Robeson in 1946. It's called Paul Robeson, Citizen of the World. I have a couple of copies, but this one I want you to look, pay potentially attention to. If you can see that. This I got in Jackson, Mississippi at a used bookstore. It was deaccessioned from the Carnegie Public Library, the Myrtle Hall branch in Clarksdale, Mississippi. 
the Myrtle Hall Library was a library that black people in Clarksdale got built protesting. They opened it in 1930. I shudder to think what happened to the library. I mean, in other words, what happened to the books in the library? Because if I pull this off the shelves of a used bookstore in Jackson, what did y'all do with the rest of the books? This is this is a treasured book for me because it's not only Shirley Graham writing it, and it's about Paul Rosen, but it came out the Hall Library in Clarksdale. And y'all know how important Clarksdale is. I'm sure it has the first blues museum. In fact, the blues museum that's in Clarksdale, Mississippi, originally started as a room in the Hall Library, the same place this book came from. And y'all know Clarksdale and the blues is a big deal, right? Um, What am I thinking? Sam Cooke is from Clarksdale. Uh, Yeah. Ike Turner is from Clarksdale. I'm sorry, don't shudder. You see, I'll be watching TV shows and think you know something about Ike Turner. You don't know nothing about Ike Turner. If all you know about Ike Turner is the horrific, indefensible way that he was treating Tina Turner. But if you don't know about Clarksdale and Ike Turner, then you don't really know about the larger context. So that when that cat gets crucified, that crucifixion must be made in context, has to be put in context. Anyway, so in this book, Shirley Graham says, I love this. Shirley Graham says it's at the end of, and this ain't in Duberman's book, which lets me know. The reason I say I don't really recommend Duberman, and, he, and he's even done another, ver I ain't going to show y'all that one. He's done a YA version of this, just came out. Um, Jason Reynolds actually wrote the forward. I'm like, man, this can't, man I got to do a little bit more research, please. But and he's also Duberman's also the talking head when they make Paul Ropes and documentaries and stuff. They often get Duberman. And it's got it's a great book. But the lens again, Raul Peck is the lens. The narrative has to be made. I'm saying you missed in many ways the governance structure of Paul Ropes. And who is he to black people who are black people? Him. Shirley Graham writes this book in 1946, just as Paul Ropes and Paul Ropes is still riding high. Robeson is at a fraternity meeting of his fraternity. And he said, this is the late 1920, December. In fact, it's December 31st. In fact, let me just read it. For Alpha Phi Alpha men, this is one of the reasons, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm an alpha, Paul Rosen. For Alpha Phi Alpha men, December was crowded with events. The holidays brought members from all over the country to attend their national convention. Paul shook the hands of men who all his life had been on the names, Negroes of whom his father and brothers had spoken proudly. Then came the last night of the year when they came together for their closing banquet and to hear their most distinguished member, the internationally known savant, W.E.B. Du Bois. Robeson hears Du Bois for the first time. Robeson listens to Du Bois. Du Bois was an alpha. They made him an alpha. Du Bois tells him, this is what the race has to do. This is how we have to move. This is what we got to do. And then Shirley Graham writes, each man listened attentively. Paul looked again down the long board. Scientific investigation and organized action among Negroes in close cooperation to secure the survival of the Negro race until the cultural development of America and the world is willing to recognize Negro freedom as an essential part of human progress. He had concluded his speech. No flights of oratory, nor impassioned peroration, only the truth. Paul was never to forget that evening. When but 10 minutes of the old year were left. Everybody stood in the circle around the room with arms crossed and each man's hand grasping the hand of the man beside him, standing thus they sang, NRD, AFIA, fraternal spirits bind. I imagine, man, if I could have been in the room singing the frat hymn, all the noble, the true and courageous 
manly deeds, scholarship, and love for all mankind are the aims of our dear fraternity. I could have been in that circle. Paul Rosen in that circle. W.E.B. Du Bois in that circle. I'm saying, you know, stop doing stuff just because somebody else did it. Know why you make every decision in your life. Know why you join any association. People say, oh, he's these petty bourgeois. Understand that at a moment in time, when our people are under perpetual assault, the whole idea of getting an education, there was no question why. I'm doing this so I can fulfill my human potential and I'm going to do me. And I'm like, well, who the hell? It's three Negroes in the country with a degree. You one of them, meaning that degree will be used for the race. <laughs> do you understand? So within a year, a year later, Paul and Essie Robeson are married. They announced their uh, wedding at the National Convention of Alpha and Delta because she was a Delta. I mean, these are not associations. Now I'm thinking about our sister, Ajua Batwe Asmoa, who is so deeply involved in Delta and political organizing. It's no good to be in any of these associations if you're not doing something for your people. In fact, that's the only reason they exist. They don't exist so you can be blackface versions of white affiliation. If that's why you're in it, then do us all a favor and don't be coming around talking about you doing something for the race. No, you're doing something for yourself. And you, that does, that's not the same. So, you know, it's not the same. But at any rate, I'll, I'll conclude on this very quickly. Um, Robeson, in fact, let me just let me just do this together. I'm going to keep Shirley Graham close because it's one other quote I want to make from Shirley Graham. But I'm looking around now because I'm, I'm again, I'm looking at the clock and I know I'm, I don't want to go long on this. They have their child, Paul Robeson Jr., their only child, 1927. All that stuff, the Essie side. I want y'all to deal with that. By then... Paul Robeson is is um is going around doing performances with his friend Lawrence Brown, his accompanist, his lifelong accompanist, the guy who writes the forward, the introduction to Here I Stand. And Essie is managing them. Eventually, they go to England. They stay in England for like 12, 13 years. He, he's in showboat on stage. He sings Old Man River, uh, 1928. So now he's a big stage star. And of course, we all know the song, Old Man, Old Man River, Old Man River, right? And then there's the line in there, tote that barge, lift that bail, you get a little drunk and you lands in jail. Ropes and singing that, comes a big star, right? Then he goes and plays Othello in London. He's in London playing Othello. They're over there for 13 years. They just leave the country. Why? What the hell? I'm a big star. To play Othello in London, he's the second black man to do it. The first one was the great Ira Aldrich that we talked about, the New York African Free School. Now, let me bring Shirley Graham back into this for a minute. What did I do with Shirley? Come on, there you go, Shirley. Shirley Graham, the reason I'm bringing this up, and here's why I'm and I'll leave Shirley Graham after this. Oh, by the way, see, this is the genius. This is young adult in 1946. This is young adult literature. You see what she did? Shirley Graham, that's how she organized it by movements, like a, a like a like a song, Allegro, Adagio, Scherzo, and Allegro con Brio. Allegro, first movement of life, brisk or lively. The second one, uh, Adagio, slow, slow tempo. The third, Scherzo, lightly played. Now you're going to start talking about how now he is now going to go to England and all this kind of stuff. And then the fourth movement, Allegro con Brio, fast with spirit, because now the politics is going to get involved. It is in the third movement, Scherzo, where she tells the story of, no, no, toward the end of the second movement, Adagio, as they're coming into England. No, 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 I was right. The third movement. Oh, no, actually, no, she's in the fourth movement. Now they're picking up. They're in England. 
He's playing Othello, 1930. And she says there was this that black people were traveling all over. And so she said a lot of people went to Paris the summer of 1930. Langston Hughes, County Cullen, Elaine Locke, Louis and Edna Thomas, young Adam Clayton Powell. Then she writes another boatload, grumbled Eric Walwyn, superior in his contract with Bonnie and Silverlight, and St. Michelle might be mistaken for 7th Avenue. She said, Eric Walwyn's out of the Caribbean. He's in Paris. And so Eric Walwyn's a very important figure. But then she says, then one morning, Paul Robeson's sister was discovered in their midst. Banners were hung out. She was quiet and presently serious, intent on perfecting her French. Everybody wanted to show her Paris. She was his sister. And then everybody's talking to her except one tongue-tied, wistful student. This little girl, well, not little girl, this lady, this young lady was so tongue-tied because she, she loved Paul Robeson. She loved him so much. This young lady who was in Paris in summer 1930, she travels to London to see Paul Robeson play Othello on the stage. She gets there. She, oh, she trill. You know how y'all, you know how y'all young people are. She there, I'm here to see Paul Robeson. She gets to the theater, ticket. Okay, good. Wait, I still got time. Is it, maybe he's here. Maybe he's here for dress. No, he's not here. Can't you? Okay. So she started walking around the neighborhood. Then she finds out that Paul and Essie live nearby well guess what she goes to the spot she how she find out the address she walks up to some person somebody random in the street and says i have a letter for mr paul robeson <laughs> so the, the guy tells her where to go she knocks on the door and guess what miss robeson she says because she's the lady answers the door in another moment, she was being coarsely greeted by a charming little lady. She's writing about the lady in third person, the girl. She's greeted by this charming little lady who introduced herself as Mrs. Good, Ms. Robeson's mother. Eslanda Good Robeson was named for her mother. Her mama name was Eslanda. She wasn't trill like Ida B. Wells, who just named her child Ida B. Wells Jr. But <laughs> she, you know what I'm saying? But uh, here's the thing. So then she sits, talks with Mrs. Robeson, has this conversation. She's sitting there. She gets a little meal. Then she goes off to see Paul Robeson play Othello. She's sitting in the theater. She says she returned the next day to Paris and to school. But high in the clouds, drowning the hum of the motors, she could still hear his voice, which is a line from Othello, which became the line of one of the documentaries on Paul Robeson, Speak of Me As I Am. Now, can y'all see this? She puts a note at the end of that chapter. Note. The insignificant student is the writer. Mm. She writing about herself. Martin Dubman ain't put that in his book, The Authoritative Biography. Why? Because I'm not interested in who you are to each other. Oh, I should mention one other thing. When this little girl who became Shirley Graham, when she was 13-year-old girl, uh, this cat came to stay at her house and her father uh, gave the speaker who was in town to speak to the black community, gave the speaker her bedroom to be comfortable. And she said, I was mad, but I was also enthralled by this guy. She was 13. He was 42. What? <laughs> what? Shirley Graham eventually married that man. Ciao. This is Shirley Graham Du Bois. This Du Bois second wife. But Shirley Graham had a whole career. 
before she 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 waged that man. Now Nina, he was mad. Nina died nineteen fifty. Shirley Graham ended up marrying W. You talk about waiting a long time. Y'all seen them pictures of the voices? <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying. So Paul Rosen met her future husband when he was at the Alpha Banquet on New Year's Eve and had his mind blown. And then she turned around and met him when she came across from Paris to see him at Othello and met his mama first before she had her mind blown by him. And all of them, Paul, Essie, W.E.B. and uh, and Shirley became huge, along with William Alphaeus Hunton and his wife, uh, William Patterson and his wife. I mean, they became Louise Thompson Patterson. I mean, these are these are women and men who are equally yoked and equally involved in the black liberation struggle that the government tries to persecute. OK, let me pause there because we could actually continue this. But I do want to just mention a couple other things while Robeson is in. I'm looking at all these books and I know I won't be able to talk about all these things. They come back from London. But before they come back from London. <laughs> This is Black World from 1970. This is the November 1970 issue. There is a piece in here by an old friend of ours in class. The great Trinidadian who wrote the Black Jacobins, C.L.R. James. Why? Because C.L.R. James talks about when he first met Paul Robeson. Because remember we said Paul Robeson played Toussaint L'Ouverture in London while he was there. And Paul Robeson even changed part of the script because he said, this is too long. I want to stop here. And the thing is, people, you know, he and he and he, he he said to CLR James, hey, man, we should we should play Robeson and Dessaline. You play Dessaline. I'll, I mean, uh, uh, Toussaint and Dessaline. You play Dessaline. I'll pay Toussaint and then we'll do it for a while. Then we'll switch roles. They never get it. ever been a different play. But. He talks about, he said, Paul Robeson was the and remains the most marvelous human being I've ever known or seen. Yet this man was in his time feared by the great majority of white people in the United States. And today, although he is still alive, is forgotten by many of those who knew him. This is 1975. He, you know, Robeson lived almost another six years. The present generation of militant young blacks have not merely forgotten him. It is worse. They never knew him and are not aware of him. This is 1970. This article is a beginning. It is all that it can be. Of such a gigantic figure. I went to London in the West from West Indies in 1932. He talks about the play, but here's where I want to go. And I want to do this in tribute to uh, I'm sorry, Kerry Washington. Y'all roasted Kerry Washington for saying that uh Prince Philip and DMX were standing in front of Pearly Gates talking, and she wondered what they're talking about. And then y'all, y'all was like, they ain't in the same place. I'm not getting no theological argument, but uh anyway, I'm gonna do this in honor of the Prince, the Duke of Edinburgh, a known racist. Exterminate all the brutes, British colonial empire racists, and your wife won too. So at any rate, I'm sorry, the queen, I think y'all call her. All of you all enamored with the British crown as if they would do anything to you other than say no humans involved when they run over you in the street. But I understand. It's hard. It's tough. You just got to let them go, though. You got to let your master go. Can you do it? You can do it. You can do it. Put your back into it, as he would say. But he said, this is the last thing he said. Because he done told all the stories about Robes and his politics. He says, but I'm going to tell you one more story about Paul Robes. He said, one day I was walking the, up the street to the British Museum. I saw Paul's magnificent figure coming down the street. And as usual, I stopped to talk to him. It was always a pleasure to be in his, his company and to talk to him. He was a man of great gentleness. And he starts talking about this. And then he says, he said, um, oh, because he said there had been a scandal in the British papers. Apparently a member of the British royal family was having a secret affair with a Negro. Oh, what? 
Meghan Markle. No, Meghan Markle's legit. She got married. I mean, and then, then my man's, you know, he ain't really happy about that. He want no monkeys in the family, right? Sorry, Prince. Maybe you over the other side, wherever you are dealing with some ancestors now, big boy. But at any rate, I'm sorry. I think that's contempt. I don't. Difference of opinion. We can live with it. But the point is that there's a scandal in the British tabloids. There's a member of the royal family having an affair. So what James says is what they would normally do in situations like that. They would tolerate it until it went public. Then they would get in the ears of the tabloids. And once it came out, they would quietly have the woman, because it's a woman, not like Harry. It's a woman doing it with a, with a black dude. Oh, this is Othello. This is going to be a problem. They would have her go on vacation. Oh, Diana. Maybe that's it. Anyway, y'all can psychoanalyze Harry and them. That's y'all business. But at any rate, he says one day he's walking down the street while this thing has jumped off. He sees Paul. <laughs> but this day, Paul was bothered. He said he, he was never bothered by stuff. This is what he says. He says, James, he said, you hear what all the people are saying about a colored singer and a member of the British royal family? It's not me, James. He said passionately, it's not me. I started to laugh. Paul looked at me somewhat surprised and said, what is it to laugh at? I don't see anything to laugh at. I told him, Paul, you're a Negro from the United States. You're living in England and you say that people are linking your name to a member of the British royal family. That, my dear Paul, is for you is not a scandal. It's not a disgrace. I laugh because you seem so upset about it. That is very funny. He said, well, maybe there is something to what you say, but you know how it is. I said, yes, I know how it is. And I know it isn't you, Paul, but nevertheless, it's very funny. And we parted. James said that was many years ago. And I've seen and read about Paul and heard about him in many circumstances and in many different and more serious situations. But for some reason or other, there remains in my mind his passionate denial that he was not he was the person that was being written about in the papers and talked about as having an illicit relationship with the member of the British royal family. Most men whom I know, Nearly all, listen carefully, it's what James is saying. Most men I, whom I know, nearly all might have denied it, but in all probability would have given the impression that they were not displeased. Certainly not bothered one way or the other. But for some reason or other, which I cannot go into here, but which I think should be remembered about Paul, is his passionate statement. James, it isn't me. Robeson is telling James it isn't me like that boy told my students, DMX, I'm sorry, you don't have to even say why you're so passionate. I don't want that white girl. <laughs> and let's be clear. I'm sorry, Megan. I'm sorry, Prince. I'm sorry for the people for whom whiteness is the trophy. Paul Robeson wants his friend CLR James to know it ain't me. Because you know, it isn't me. No, it ain't me. In other words, <laughs> what y'all not going to do, because <laughs> I'm the biggest star in the world. When he makes Sanders of the River and they edit it and make it into some colonial remix, like a heart of darkness kind of narrative, he's mad as hell. He then comes in with Essie and like negotiates this next movie. We're going to do something. We, in fact, they name him Bo Sambo. That's the name of the leader in it. He then makes it when he makes the next movie, he's like, nah, I want African students. He's got he's got he's got black student. Yomo Kenyatta is one of the things because they know all the African students in London. They make them you see them in pictures with African dress. I mean, it's a very beautiful thing. And then he makes a movie called The Proud Valley with the Welsh miners. He's a citizen of the world. He studies. Sterling Stuckey said in his book and not his book, he made this is a chapter of his book, uh, 
slave culture. Sterling Stuckey wrote about ropes. And this is actually the pamphlet, the, the article that became the chapter in slave culture. Uh, I want to be African. Paul Robeson in the ends of national theory and practice. Robeson said, I'm African. In fact, let me just quote it. I'm a Negro with every drop of my blood, every stir of my soul. In my Negro heart lies buried the memories of century of oppression. In my music, my plays, my films, I want to care. I want to carry this always central idea to be African. Multitudes of men have died for less worthy ideals. It is even more eminently worth living for. I mean, he said that in 1934. So what Robeson is, Stucky says, Robeson studied at least a dozen languages. He said he had learned Swahili, Zulu, Mende, Ashanti, Igbo, Efik, Edo, Yoruba, and Egyptian. Arabic, really. Understand what that means. This guy's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Biggest stage actor in the world. Concert. And he's in London at the School of Oriental African Studies learning African languages. And as he's learning them, he's saying, I'm, I'm studying Yoruba and I see the connections between this and the songs we grew up singing. I see it. And now I'm going to write up how these things connect. What I'm saying, that is an artist who is grounded in intellectual work. And I could go on, but I, but I do need to stop. I do need to stop because otherwise, in fact, maybe we should just bring in. Yes. Yeah, let's just bring in folks because maybe we'll say a little bit more about ropes because there's so much. I mean, and I think you know the conversation we had with Essie fills in all of the blanks. So you well, know. well, well, I know one thing we didn't talk about there is in 1949, Harry Belafonte met him. In his memoir, Belafonte talks about what happened when he met. He met. He said he met Robeson in 1949. He was at their house in New York because Harry Belafonte was just blowing up. And Robeson, the Robesons invited him over. And who is at the dinner party? W.E.B. Du Bois is at the dinner party. John Oliver Killens, Langston Hughes at the dinner party. And they're talking. Robeson is getting ready to go to Paris. And this is where the thing went off the rails. Robeson went to the Paris Peace Conference and said, black people are not going to fight in a war just, you know, to keep war going. And we wouldn't attack the Soviet Union. We want peace. The United States then tries to use that against Paul Robeson. And so who do they bring in to come in and say, Robeson said, black people won't fight. For Russia, I mean, won't fight against Russia. Oh, come on, come on. I know I just wanted to mention this one other thing because oh, I thought I had it, I thought I had it, and I don't see it. Man, oh, that's too bad. What is it? I'm looking for my copy of I Never Had It Made. All right, say the, book, say the book and then we'll hold it up where we annotate okay, it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. What? I never I never had it made is the uh 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 here it is. Here it is. I never had it made is the autobiography of Jackie Robinson. Oh. This isn't the original, but it's precious to me because Rachel Robinson signed it. But at any rate, his wife, who is still alive, my God, go ahead. Ray has he called her. They got Jackie Robinson to come to DC. They wanted him to testify against Paul Robeson, what he said. And and he, he talks about his statement, but this is what he said though. He said, when I went down there, he said, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. He said, um, I know why he made the statement he made. He said, but I would not make that testimony today. He said, in fact, however, in those days, oh, no, no. He says, I'm not sure. I was not sure about what to do. Rachel and I had long talks about it. She felt I should follow my instincts. I didn't want to fall prey to the white man's game and allow myself to be pitted against another black man. I knew that Robeson was striking out against racial inequality in a way that seemed best to him. However, in those days, I had much more faith in the ultimate justice of the American white man than I have today. Mm. This book was published just after he passed. He got the pages in just before he collapsed and died at 53 years old. 
mm. in Connecticut. Right. So, so this ain't Jackie Robinson. Oh, and then he changed again. No, no, this is just before he went on. He said, I would reject such an invitation if it was offered now. I know y'all now. I'm not. So y'all stop making movies. Chad Bozeman was the man, but don't make 42 and then freeze Jackie Robinson at second base for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He's bit Jackie Robinson. This is the title. Do you understand? Anyway, let me pause there. All right. We, no, we, I mean, but I think, you know, as we move forward, just like, you know, the, the, the documentary we started off with, this is a process of learning and yeah. as we learn. We, we, as we know better, we do better. Hopefully. I just need us to know more and more and more so that we can do better. And some of us are stuck. We get stuck in one place. We 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 go down one rabbit hole and we stay there. But yeah. there's so much knowledge. There's so much out there for us yeah. to connect these dots. Just as Paul learned something from Europe, Paul Robeson, the great Paul Robeson, that connected to his childhood growing up, this tapestry could be put together. That's very so, true. We'll start to realize how much connection we have to one another throughout the globe throughout history, throughout time, That's and right. throughout remembering. So I'm just, I'm grateful for that. Thank you for that lesson on That's Paul right. Robeson and, uh, and Dennis from Vegas. Dennis from Vegas, welcome. Dennis. Yes, yes, uh, how y'all doing? Good to see y'all again. How you doing, Doc? I see, I see you have the, uh, how you feeling? the young brother coming out to Will Maston Trio there on your-, yes. On your... <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Great Sammy Davis. Much Jr. love to Sammy. Yes, sir. A, yes, sir, yes, sir. I'm gonna make this real quick, a whole tip to you and Hotel, Sister Karen, hotel, um, early in, in the in the in in this discussion, um, in my in my in my longing and my desire, my working toward un unwhitening my mind and decolonizing myself, I have been studying uh, with in regards to with some things Dr. Cobb had taught and also Dr. Clark had mentioned. Yeah, this is my question to you. From my from my research and my study, the Caucasian when he came out of the Caucasus Mountains, he did not develop his his pineal gland like us Africans did, okay? Mm -hmm. Therefore, the fact that his pineal gland was underdeveloped, and he's basically a, mut a mutant of the original man, the African man, right? Mm. So, yes. he, so, in actuality, so in actuality, physiologically, scientifically, he is a mutant of us. Therefore, he is not the same human beings that we are, okay? Mm. So what I'm, I guess what I'm getting to is that I'm not trying to make a stink as far as people saying, Blacks and whites, but when it comes down to this, the Caucasians is a different animal, it's different creation, it's different creature, even different same DNA. All um, right, but what Dennis, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say, yes, I know what you're trying to say, yes, and uh, I'm gonna ask you, how does it free us to have this conversation? Number one, mm. I appreciate That's what you're question. saying. Uh, you know, no, but I think you know, somebody in the comments said, you know, I'm not gonna replace black supremacy, white supremacy with black supremacy. These conversations are not about putting ourselves here no. and somebody else here. Right. This is about understanding as Dr. Carr, our relationship to one another and our relationship to history, to this information, getting the facts straight and then putting perspective on it. Whether people are mutants or not mutants or Yakub or what have you, whatever mm. happened, we are all here right now under the yoke of something that I think a lot of us will agree is very uncomfortable. How right. do we conquer that? How do we overcome that? And I think the, the goal is for us to gain as much knowledge as po possible, because as, mm. as uh, Mr. Truyo said, knowledge is power, but history is the fruit of power. And whoever wins in the end gets to frame the story. Our goal should be to know as much as we can about ourselves and others so that we can frame the narrative much the way my brother did with this documentary. We can't frame a knowledge or a story or a narrative unless we have the tools to do that. And I think, mm. you know, it's easy to grab onto something because it makes us feel good. 
The goal is not to be superior to anybody else, but to know yourself fully so that you can move in this world in a way in which you can empower yourself and others. I don't think there's anything to gain to have the conversation around. And I know, Dr. Carr, you may disagree with me. Mm -hmm. uh, these people are mutants, therefore. Oh, that that's not that's not. I don't, think, I don't know enough about. I mean, in, in other words, let me just say this right quick. Here, while all three of us here and, and didn't say because uh, I agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly, uh, 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 sis. That is, that has to be, we're not trying to replace, high, the, the key is to dismantle the hierarchy. So when, you know, when our friend, Dr. Amin, when Sunyata talks about decolonizing wellness, that means that the goal is to be well. As Tony K. Bambara asked the first page of the Salt Eaters, the question is, honey, do you want to be well? And if you want to be well, and so Dennis, you know, and I'll say this very advisedly. I mean, again, you know, our friend Ibram Kendi, when you read his book, How to Be Anti-Racist, he talks about having read through the melanin literature and, you know, come Francis Cress Welsing and others and saying, OK, yeah. And then I, I grew I outgrew that because I knew that it wasn't biological. You know, I read those pages and I kind of chuckled to myself because I knew Francis Cress Welsing. And she was not a biologist, psychiatrist by training and, and, and a brilliant one. In fact. People now talking about anti-racism. Francis Cress Wilson was telling me, y'all see Tucker Carlson lose his damn mind? Francis Cress is in the ancestral realm chuckling. She says she tried for years to have people understand what she called a Cress theory of color confrontation. This notion of white insecurity feeding this notion now. You know, you know Tucker Carlson went full Charlottesville the other night. Francis Cress is like, y'all can't be surprised. Oh, now y'all paying people to tell you what anyway. But that's not biology. I also knew Richard King, who wrote, in fact, Uraeus is interesting. Uh, there was a collection he wrote published in a journal called Uraeus, which was collected together. Uraeus, the Journal of Unconscious Thought, about the pineal gland. But two, he's in psychology, right? Carol Barnes, who was a chemist, wrote a book called Melanin, the, key, the key to key, Chemical Key to Black Greatness. I mean, so in terms of the so-called melanin conversations, I read all that literature and I knew many of those people, many of whom are now ancestors. And I can say this comfortably, not knowing enough of the science, I would say my, my, I start from the point of departure that everybody on the planet has the same basic equipment. So whatever we, whatever human be human beings did to adapt to our material circumstances is not the point of departure to explain the continuing hierarchical persecution. It doesn't explain monopoly capitalism. And it doesn't, people talk about nature, nurture. I don't get into those things. At the same time, those who stake out that position, I listen like I listen to everybody else. And finally, Professor Hunter, as you say, I asked myself that same question that Sonny Sanchez asked us. Yeah, but how do it free us? And by that freedom, when Paul Robeson tells uh, the people in Australia, because he comes through, he plays Othello again in the 50s. And then he, now he's in Australia. Having conversation. He said, you know, I like playing Othello. But I think that uh, black people should be able to play any role in Shakespeare, King Lear, Hamlet, or any role anywhere in anything. But this is what he says. I don't say that because I want to be white. I say that because there's something special about the cultures that black people created over the arcs of thousands of years that when I inhabit that role, I will transform that role. Now, it would be interesting in my mind to think, I wonder what Paul Robeson would think of Hamilton. I suspect he wouldn't necessarily be a big fan. Why? Because to me, that's lowbrow. That's more like minstrelsy. And Robeson fought against minstrelsy his whole life. 
Now, maybe next week we turn to maybe 10, 15 minutes. I, did, I really want to get because what we didn't talk about is his his politics as he embraced socialism, communism, his work with freedom and freedom ways with Lorraine Hansberry when he went to the Soviet Union, what happened to him in the last 10 years of his life. All that stuff is extremely important. But I want to emphasize this finally in terms of just responding to to what you've raised, Dennis, to say that. The one of the challenges with what some people and I've referred to it this way is to call white supremacy. But even that language, white is not supreme. These are artificial identities that have been generated to justify and to perpetuate hierarchies that rob us of our humanity or if we allow them to. Like Paul Robeson. We have to be able to stand in the fullness of our humanity our distinct humanity, our cultural humanity, our experiential humanity, our long memory, and standing in that rootedness, speak to the whole world and intervene when it comes to oppression and transform the world. That may sound abstract, but it is not abstract. And believe me, focusing on the idea of biological difference gives them an out. And who is they? Anybody who want to perpetuate this hierarchy, including those who want to perpetuate a racial hierarchy, gives them a, gives them a way out. No, you don't get no way out. You no, uh, -uh. you're going to get your foot off of my knee and you're not going to have it on my knee for eight seconds, much less eight minutes. And no, hell no. You understand? <laughs> That's a, it, 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 it's difficult, y'all, because it's out of the pain. It's the same pain DMX lived his whole life in. That's why that's why he resonates. It's that pain. But if you let that pain become the core of your analysis. All it's going to do is reinforce the hierarchy. That's what they count on. That's why they keep pumping that stuff out into our veins. Into our minds, into our spirits. You yes. know, exterminate all the brutes. You know, the, at the foundation of that was the dehumanization of a people that That's allowed right. them to do unthinkable things that to this day we are still confronting. And if the goal is to free us, then we have to have the conversation around freedom of all. And that means freeing people of their own inhumanity. And that means showing it up every time. And we can't double down on inhumanity. You know, we no. can't be inhumane in the midst of us going to to try to find our own freedom. I, I just I can never do that. Um, and those but, but we don't have they don't mean being peaceful all the time either. Oh, I'm not even talking about peace. No, no. But I mean, somebody might read that as, oh, well, you being people like say when that lady gets shot in the head in episode one, take sit in it. You sit in that. I, I, and but that showed you what we're in right now, which is why I right. like conversation with this com with, with that question that I had that we should pick up next week because I feel like folk are catching up to to the questions and to the answers and aren't really watch the video watch the four-part series uh let's come back next week and really you know dig into the question of what does it what is it going to take when you're confronted with an energy that is willing to shoot you in the middle of the head when all you are there to do is to negotiate your own humanity they don't yes. give a damn about that. That's right. And understand and understand what Raul Peck is saying. He says it, in fact, right there. He says these forces are they're no less powerful, but they are less visible than gunfire, than class property or political crusades. So if you think it's about the gun, no, the gun is the instrument. The force behind that gun is the thing you need to pause now. And think about because that is the thing that is controlling our lives. That is the thing that's controlling our lives. It ain't it ain't the gun. It's something less visible than the gun. 
And so you're right, Professor Hunter. And that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to get. That is what's interchangeable with that social structure category we talk about in the African studies uh, uh, framework. That's why we had to create social structure. The question we ask ourselves is, who are we to other people? But that's not where we end, because that's the category that everything that is a distraction gets in anti-racism, diversity training. No, you keep talking about who you are to other people. See us. I am a man. I am a woman. I'm going to get y'all. If you just listen to me, uh-uh. That's social structure. Governance structure in that opening scene in Exterminate All the Brutes, that's what they were doing before the white boy came out the woods. They sitting there like, okay, y'all need to go. Now, this is our land. We staying and you staying with us because we family. All right, well, then we staying. That's who we are to each other. Got to focus. When you start focusing on that, all that other stuff, we'll know how to fight it. <laughs> don't, don't let them pull you off your square. That's what we're doing every. That's what we're doing with narrative. That's what we're doing here on Saturdays. Let's focus on us. Let's focus Amen. on us. Amen. Uh, Dennis, thank you. Love you. Dennis, uh, thank you, bro. Yeah, thank everybody, uh, all the folk from everywhere that you are from. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then every day is humbling. Uh, we're coming in and the family and narrative is growing too. So thank you for that. Uh, sign up if you haven't signed up. Please. Are, this is literally a pyramid being built in real time that will be here forever. And you guys are participating in that. So thank you. And yes. thank you, Dr. Carr, because let's be clear. You are the master. No, let's be clear. You are the architect. I, I perceive it. All right. See y'all next week. Oh, and um, in May, we're going to do live book club. Uh, we did our first book, Souls of Black Folk. Dr. Carr and I uh, did a, narr a narrative or an introduction and, and some chapter breakdowns. So we're going to have that available in there. Yeah. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. I will say this. When I saw what these geniuses on the narrative side did with that, look, I'm 55 years old. When I tell y'all, uh, y'all every week I say, you know, when we ain't going back the way it was, trust, we ain't never going back. I may not, not never leave because I mean, I looked at that and said, I got to step my game up. <laughs> yeah, you just took, you talk about what you say, the hottest show in the universe? No, this is the highest show in the multiverse. So, so live book club will be exclusively in narrative and we're going to oh. start, start doing fewer uh, in classes here. We're going to take some of that over there. Yes. We're going short, you know, like we, we're going to have to start contracting from a yes. space that we don't own and putting more and pouring more into a space that we do. Yes. So uh, that's what's happening. So get yes. ready and we'll see y'all next week. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Professor Hunt.